0: Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, everybody. This is CJ Wolf from Health City, and welcome to another episode of Compliance Conversations. Uh, today we have a, a super guest, Sean McKenna, wonderful attorney. Welcome, Sean.
1: Hey, thank you all for inviting me to be on.
0: Yeah, we appreciate your time. We know you're busy, um, and uh, you're joining us from Dallas, and we're here in, in Salt Lake City. So it's... Hopefully, our technology will work out for us today.
1: Absolutely, hope it's as nice there as it is here today. But of course, the weather can change. You know, in two hours from now. So
0: exactly. Well, I, I'm, before we kind of start talking about some of these topics um, and questions that I have, would you just take a minute and give our listeners a quick background um, and bio of yourself? I know you've got experience both in as an attorney in uh, the government as well as now in private practice so would you uh, explain a little bit about where you've been and what you've been doing
1: yeah absolutely so uh, i've been with greenberg traurig as a shareholder in the dallas office where i handle healthcare matters and other white collar issues uh before that i was another large firm but the first 16 years approximately 16 years of my career i spent with the federal government so at get the beginning, I was with CMS in the Regional Council's Office in Dallas, where I handled a variety of regulatory and administrative matters on behalf of CMS. And then about a year and a half later, I transferred up to the OIG in DC, where I handled a lot of fraud related issues, kind of worked on False Claims Act cases, CIAs, and affirmative litigation, such as exclusions and civil monetary penalties, as well as other regulatory issues. And that was about three and a half years. And so in two thousand three I came back to Dallas and I was an assistant US attorney in the Northern District of Texas here where I handled for ten years all variety of healthcare fraud cases civil and criminally, uh locally, nationally, uh, regionally, et cetera, from all types of suppliers and providers as well as all types of theories, you know, reverse false claims act, kickbacks, et cetera. And so after 10 years, I decided to go to private practice, and that's where I've been for about three and a half years now.
0: Great. So you're now defending um, providers from, from these types of allegations and, and cases, right?
1: Correct. So I represent all individual executives and health care providers in, you know, on any matter of civil, criminal, administrative, or other kind of audit situation, uh, handle a variety of providers from hospitals, to physician groups, to physicians to businessmen, to labs, pharmacies, you name it, I've seen it. We also do a lot of compliance-related work and internal investigations to provide clients with kind of some insight as to kind of what they need to do in order to ensure and beef up their compliance programs and to try and mitigate or avoid any type of enforcement action. And I speak regularly uh, on that as well. And CJ, we spoke together last year at the HCCA Compliance Institute, I believe.
0: Yep. At the Enforcement uh, Institute in in D.C. That was wonderful. Um, you know, I'd, I think one of the things that's on my mind and probably compliance officers' mind is, you know, it seems like, and maybe you correct me if these aren't the right numbers, it seems like the vast majority of of False Claims Act come from, you know, key TAMs and from whistleblowers. Um it, first of all, is that true? And secondly, if it is, you know, how does an organization protect themselves proactively? And then maybe if you'd comment, kind of what happens after a, a suit is actually filed? I mean, I'm sure the the strategy is a little bit different than, different at that point.
1: Absolutely, yes, CJ, you are correct. I the variety, the majority of these cases come from the TEAAM or whistleblower provisions under the False Claims Act. And most of the big settlements you hear about reported in the media and pharmaceutical or device or large hospital groups or systems generally start from a whistleblower complaint filed in a district court where there's jurisdiction. And for a national company, that could be anywhere in the country. But ultimately what happens is the case is filed. And, you know, from there, the government has a certain period of time you know, the statute under the False Claims Act says 60 days, typically can be a year or two, to investigate and determine whether they want to intervene in the case, take it over, obviously they could settle it or decline it. And at that point, the relator can go forward. And and we're seeing a trend in the last year or so where years ago, if the Department of Justice declined to intervene in a False Claims Act case, the relator would usually drop it. But it seems like today most relators – find some sort of financial backing, either through their firm or otherwise, or, or joining with other firms, and continue to prosecute the case on behalf of the government, in which they're entitled to, you know, a share up to 30%. So one of the big things that when I'm talking to people and advising clients is that we generally want to see a robust, effective compliance program. And obviously, most organizations are familiar with the OIG's model, the seven elements originally derived from the U.S. sentencing guidelines for corporations. But one of the key aspects of that is to really have an independent compliance program charged and empowered to investigate complaints and address them, you know, at either an audit committee, compliance committee level, or individually, take action. And so ultimately what we recommend is that any complaint coming through the hotline or otherwise, you know, needs to be taken serious, it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be disseminated that there was an issue or not an issue uh throughout the organization. Now obviously if there was an issue, then there you know that there may not be you know as much urgency. But one of the big things I see in defending these types of cases on behalf of my clients is that the whistleblowers feel that they for whatever reason, have no other recourse but to file a case or go to the government, and they feel that their complaints have fallen on deaf ears. So I think that's the number one issue I'd usually see when uh, the case is filed or that we become aware of it is that certain individuals, whether disgruntled or not, some are and some aren't, uh, some just feel like they're doing the right thing, uh, or have not been addressed, those concerns. And so that's critical. And ultimately, another component is, Doing the auditing and self-reporting, if there is an issue, obviously with the changes in the Affordable Care Act and recent legislation, any Medicare or Medicaid provider has 60 days to repay an overpayment. And there's a final rule that just came out that addresses that, and I think there's a six-year look-back period. But ultimately, if there's a problem, it's not so much a fix-it-going-forward mentality anymore. You have to quantify it. And make the appropriate repayment and failure to do so uh, in certain circumstances can lead to a false claims act under the reverse false claims act theory or even criminal liability. Right. But one of the things we definitely advise clients, CJ, is that if you've got an issue, you just can't bury your head in the sand. You've got to address it because somebody else will address it for you.
0: Well, and that's a good point. You know, I've been a compliance officer, and you, so you get these hotline calls, you know, every week or every month or whatever it is. And you don't know if that's going to be a whistleblower or not. Sometimes the information you get on your hotline, you know, it's it's vague. Um, and if it was reported anonymously, you don't have an opportunity to go back and, and ask that person, you know, give me some more detail. So, can you give us some specifics? Like, I'm sure you probably get calls from clients when they are in the middle of investigating a hotline concern, or or maybe it just came up on an audit. And knowing how far to go um, when the complaint or allegation that, that came through their their compliance program wasn't specific enough. I mean, what do you do in those cases?
1: Well, obviously, you have to investigate them to the extent you can. And the key here, CJ, is documentation. You know, if it's so vague that you clearly can't quantify or you've done a sufficient amount of an investigation, let's just say, you know, there's hypothetically there's an allegation that services aren't being, you know, performed that are medically necessary. And in one area, of the hospital, for instance, let's just take, you know, pathology so diagnostic testing or pathological testing is not done, you know, appropriately or through medical necessity. You know, I think it's relatively straightforward to pull a small probe sample, you know, for a period of time. I would not do six years yet. Right. I would do a smaller sample and take a look at them and determine independently through the medical director or through the compliance officer or some other mechanism, what was done and how they were done. Is the documentation there sufficient? Does it appear that one physician is overutilizing or ordering an excessive amount of tests? Uh, those are the types of things that I think anybody can really glean from a cursory review. And if it presents a problem that I think discussing with counsel internally, what are the next steps is appropriate. But in that case, let's say a sample is done and everything appears to be okay. Well, then I think you would document that to the file and kind of go about your way that way in case three years later the Department of Justice or the OIG asked, hey, we have a complaint regarding medically unnecessary pathology tests. What have you done? And right. Pull out your file and say, we looked into it and we couldn't find anything and we didn't think of it. Yeah. So that could help defend against. You know, a knowing retention of an overpayment, but also rebut the allegations that there is an issue. And there are certain circumstances that Department of Justice or OIG will just, okay, thanks very much, and go about their business. Yeah. So your normal, everyday compliance function, has just say, of the organization from an investigation. And that's something I think that is critical, that compliance officers have to realize that they add value to the organization. And the compliance program, when done effectively, and demonstrably so, then they add value to the company. And that's yeah. something that I think C, uh, CJ components officers ought to be talking to their board about. Yeah. Leadership.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I remember um, kind of the story you just told or the hypothetical you just mentioned of, you know, there's lack of medical necessity in a certain department, for example. And we did, you know, we would do, just like you said, kind of a probe audit to the best that we could kind of identify based off of the complaint or the concern and then let's say we didn't find anything, but then you get a second complaint by somebody else, you know, maybe a couple of months later, or maybe it's the same person and you get some additional information. I've, I've seen that happen before. And that additional information then opens up kind of a new avenue, or it gives you more specificity to, to look at, you know, different types of claims or, or different, uh, areas, um, and uh, so I think one other thing is, you know, with compliance programs, it's it's important to kind of keep that file, like you mentioned, but also when new concerns come up in that same general area, you're referring back to say, okay, maybe there's connecting the dots. Have, have you seen that happen ever? And what you know, what anything other comments that you'd have on that scenario?
1: Right. I mean, in, some, in certain circumstances, sometimes the There could be a repeat complaint, and I think that has to be taken seriously. It could be from the same individual or from another individual, and you know I think the process can be repeated. I don't think you have to expand it from a different time frame. And ultimately, if there is nothing to be had, I mean I've seen large organizations uh, basically publish in a a quarterly newspaper. You know, there's a little compliance corner, and they say, "Hey, we've we've gotten the following complaints," and. We've looked at them, and we don't see anything to it. Uh, and obviously, that's you know not going to be appropriate for everybody, but a larger organization has utilized that before. In fact, I know Lockheed uh, used to do that as well when you know FBI Director Comey was the general counsel. And that way, you know, if you, especially if it's anonymous, then you're getting that out there to the people. Now that might not deter every individual, but at least that gives you know. A public accounting of what was done and why it was done, and whether there was an issue. Uh, but I think ultimately, if there's repeat issues, uh, then I think there probably warrants and it's prudent to do a deeper dive. Yeah. And obviously, your coding—it uh, depends on you know. There's two aspects. You got your coding and billing from a from a compliance perspective, but you also have your contract compliance as well, which potentially could be even more problematic than coding. Coding sometimes is a is an art more than a science, but contract compliance and physician relationships and how much is being paid and whether it's fair market value and whether the contract is being adhered to in right. the manner it's supposed to be. You anyway, know that's that's not an art. That's black and white. Yeah. I think a lot of organizations focus on the coding, auditing quarterly, but ultimately they they leave the physician or the other arrangements behind. And you'll see now with the OIG increasingly on in CIA's involving kickback or start cases requiring arrangement reviews of right. a certain amount per year at, at, that may, the compensation may exceed a certain threshold. Uh, and from that perspective, I mean, those are costly. And I've had a client or two recently undergo that process and, you know, it's, it's a substantial amount of money to do that uh, from, you know, whether you hire a law firm to do it or hire an you know, independent IRO or some other consultant to do it, it does take, you know, amount of time and resources away from the organization.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, let me shift gears a little bit. And, it, you know, some of our listeners might not be attorneys. Most of them aren't. They're, they're kind of compliance professionals that, that might not have, have a legal, uh, formal legal education. What happens when, and what does it tell you? When an organization has gotten a subpoena, um, does that change kind of the ballpark that you're in? Um, And what's the difference between a subpoena and a a CID? And and is there much, can you do much reading of the tea leaves when you get one versus the other?
1: Uh, In some cases, you can. So, kind of let me back up. Generally, the government, Department of Justice, is able to issue, you know, through the agencies or itself, a variety of different. Compulsory processes. Obviously, there's a grand jury subpoena, which instantly tells you that there's a criminal investigation. Uh, That also means there could be a parallel civil investigation as well. Uh, A CID is a specific tool under the False Claims Act that allows a U.S. Attorney's Office or a Deputy Attorney General to compel testimony, uh, compel interrogatories, which are written answers, or just produce certain documents. And increasingly, the CIDs are being used by the Department of Justice and False Plains Act investigations from the civil side. It can be shared with the criminal side, whereas in certain contexts, a criminal grand jury subpoena cannot be shared with the civil counterparts. But a CID is easily done from the desk of a U.S. attorney's office. And so okay. it can be issued quickly, tailored, et cetera. And generally, not every time, but if you get a CID or the third party uh, subpoena Deuces Tecum from the OIG or some other investigative agency like DOD or um, even, you know, uh, Veterans Affairs, right. it typically tells you that there's probably a whistleblower or false claims act case filed somewhere. Okay. Uh, and that's generally, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean because the Attorney General, Department of Justice, can bring a case and investigate a false claims act case on their own, absent a whistleblower suit. Right. But most of... Districts are buried in these types of cases. I think 700 are filed on average every year for the last several years. So, most of the time, they're going to be issued uh, to providers or third party witnesses, et cetera, uh, in light of the fact that the False Claims Act has been filed. Gotcha. But basically, they don't have a lot of resources just to go out and start issuing investigations on their own. Some smaller districts might. But if you're in, for instance, Philadelphia or Boston or San Francisco, Dallas or L.A., more than likely, it's going to be a False Claims Act investigation, Houston as well. It depends on jurisdiction you're in. Obviously, you can read some tea leaves into what they're looking at based on the nomenclature. Uh, But ultimately, I bet most of these are generated from a a, a, a False Claims Act case or whistleblower case. Now, the agencies can also issue their own subpoenas, not just the subpoenas to Sistica, which is ask for documents. They ask, you know, they can compel testimony. HHS OIG can compel something under a testimonial subpoena, which is akin to a civil deposition. And they generally do that when they're investigating somebody under their own administrative authorities under for exclusion or for CMPs under the Civil Monetary Penalties Law. But <coughs> CID can compel testimony, other subpoenas can't. And then there's also a last kind of hybrid It's called an uh, AID or authorized investigative demand. And the criminal division can issue that uh, under Title 18 under for certain federal health care offensives. And that can not be shared with the civil case. So oftentimes uh, an office that utilizes those, that tells me there's a civil and criminal component okay. as well. Whereas if it's a grand jury... Um, they're typically not going to issue a grand jury subpoena to a provider uh, unless, if there's a civil case, most times they don't do that because it's d- duplicative and repetitive. Okay. But, you know, a CID can be shared with the criminal as well. So, and under, you know, DOJ current guidance, they're supposed to be talking together, yeah. each other to uh, I, each other and then also collaborating on cases.
0: Exactly. I was just going to bring that up because you were talking about kind of the sharing between criminal and, and civil, and we know of the Yates memo, um... It calling kind of for that individual accountability as well as as you I think the Yates memo if I remember it right states you know one side can't um, you know resolve a case without informing the other and it sounds like some of those practices are already going on anyway and, and you'd probably know you know by region which ones already do that, but it this is more of a uh, kind of a, a more formalized guiding set of principles to to have everybody in the in the country doing that. Have you seen, or maybe it's anecdotal, but are you feeling that this individual accountability principle from the Yates memo is is starting to affect things more? And you're and you're seeing more uh, individuals being held accountable.
1: Right, and I agree, and, and definitely it has. It has a, made a tremendous impact in the way defense counsel and providers have to go about you know responding to investigations. Uh, historically, CJ, there's there's something called the parallel proceedings and it just means the simultaneous handling of civil, criminal, perhaps administrative cases, and healthcare is kind of the poster child for that. And since you know, at least the early nineties, at least since Jan Arino kind of brought healthcare back into the forefront in the mid nineties. Uh, the use of parallel proceedings is required, that's encouraged. And really, some districts did it versus some didn't do it so well. Uh, For instance, though, it's always been there, and the discretion to charge an individual versus a corporation has always been in the hands of the prosecutor. I think in the last several years, the Yates Memorandum and and the Civil Division has issued a similar edict, as well as the LIG, uh, as kind of taking it out of the hands of the local prosecuting authority and making it more formulaic. Okay. that of driven by D.C. And we might see a change in that with this new administration. We may not. But if, if there's one change that he's had, I think, you know, that's something that I would look for. But it has made casing, excuse me, representing individuals and companies difficult because at what point is it a conflict of interest that separate counsel needs to be obtained? Uh, and also, it slows the entire process down, whereas before, an organization could get, you know, to pay, you know, a fine or a penalty under the False Claims Act and the release would be for the organizations, offices, directors, agents, et cetera. And now we're seeing that individuals are contributing to the settlement, uh, they are not being released. And so only the organization and that comes as a shock to a lot of individuals and executives. And more importantly, the OIG now is taking a look at individuals for a potential exclusion or their own administrative action. Right. That, Determination is not necessarily in conjunction with the government DOJ's investigation. So you're left with kind of a choice. Well, do I want to contribute money as an individual to a False Claims Act settlement and then wait for the OIG to come around and determine whether or not I have any, or they think I have any administrative liability and resolve that then? Or do I want to do it all at the same time? Right. It just makes for a very inefficient machine because of this formulaic approach that kind of DC has. Pushed down on the districts. And so, you know, if anything, that might change. It might not, but, you know, well, the time will tell. But ultimately, these cases have become much more difficult to defend. And there's lots of ethical quandaries for defense counsel. You know, who pays for the counsel, who's indemnifying them.
0: Exactly. I mean,
1: justice doesn't like that to be the case, but sometimes contractually executives are indemnified. And then they have their own insurance and then adds. You know, instead of one lawyer kind of representing the interests of everybody because there's no adverse or no conflicts, then you could have five or six people jumping in. Right. It just creates a lot of headaches. And I've heard that from my former counterparts at DOJ as well. That just this whole process has become kind of, you know, burdened and I think they recognize that the number of settlements and the flow of the cases is gonna go down, down, and slower, slower.
0: Yeah. You know, because one of the things that I... I'm not for
1: fans either, it
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things in the 8th memo says that, you know, in order to get cooperation credit, you have to, you know, give up all the facts on who was involved, et cetera. Maybe that's been around for a while, but um, I, I wonder when compliance folks and internal uh, in-house counsel are doing investigations, you know, they're going to have to give what I understand is up-john warnings, Um, to employees? And will will employees now be more sensitive to that and say, oh, do I need my own counsel? Are you investigating? Are you going to give up these facts? If I had some sort of involvement, do I need to protect myself because you in-house counsel are representing only the organization? Is that some of this slowing down and and muddying of the waters that you're referring to?
1: Yes. I mean, that as well as the fact that just from the bureaucracy standpoint, once you come to a resolution, it takes much longer. Not that it was ever that quick, but uh, when you're doing an investigation on your end to try and cooperate, even from a company perspective, you know, your long-term client could be the CEO or the CFO of an organization or a company. And then all of a sudden you have to tell them, I don't represent you. I represent the organization. And I'd advise you to get separate counsel. Right what the results of the investigation or the compliance review has found. I mean, that's a very difficult, awkward, you know, for a lot of different attorneys. Um, And so, yes, so you're giving these up, John, or the warnings that, hey, we don't represent you, we represent the company, and, you know, and then they say, well, do I need my own lawyer? And then it becomes a dance. Exactly. I think that they have potential liability. I mean, I mean ethically you're obligated to tell them. I think you should get your own counsel. Yep. And it's timing mean, from the company's perspective trying to do an investigation to get the facts. Right. In <laughs> my experience, as I said, TJ, it's you know, they want facts, but they also want you know, they want executives. Yeah. They want cooperation not just by the company in the investigation, but also in the investigation of the others. And that just presents you know, whose, whose documents are privileged? Was company counsel involved?
0: Right. What role were they
1: acting? I mean, all these questions become really paramount when you're talking about a parallel kind of individual executive type case as well as the organization. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, are, you know, that's a new ground to a lot of people. Because I think a lot of people, frankly, have gotten lazy over the years because it's kind of been con- considered unless there's a really a bad actor that's been terminated for one reason – everybody's singing the same song and everybody's on the same page. Right. Uh, but I don't think that's the case anymore.
0: Yeah. So interesting. I tell you, um, it's an interesting time to to be involved in, in healthcare compliance and these legal issues. Um, you know, we're getting a little close to, to the end of our time. I wanted to, to ask you, you know, these are some of the things that were on my mind, but you know, you're dealing with clients and you're dealing with issues real time, day in and day out. I wonder, are there any other interesting headlines or cases or concepts uh, that you think are really important for healthcare compliance folks and, and their legal counsel to to know about?
1: Yeah, that's a couple things, CJ. One of them, which is we're continuing to watch the development of the Escobar Supreme Court case addressing, you know, implied certification uh, and how it's being interpreted by the courts. You know, that was a very it was a unanimous decision issue last year, but... Ultimately, how the lower courts are interpreting it, that's going to kind of, kind of rule the day, and I'm sure we'll have a circuit split here in the next year or so about how materiality is to be applied when determining whether a quote claim that's false or fraudulent is that a material false or fraudulent statement in order to get a claim paid, and there's you know, various tests that are out there, so we're continuing to watch that, and it is a complicated issue. Uh, another aspect is the knowing retention of overpayments. You know the case law that we now have a final review, uh, excuse me, rule on that, and we're also seeing kind of cases come about where the Department of Justice is intervening in cases where that's an allegation. But the interesting point is, let's say the Affordable Care Act is repealed in part or in whole. You know the rec- the statutory authority for that, uh, the 60-day rule, came from the Affordable Care Act. Right. You know, a lot of us are watching what's going to happen you know, with this repeal replace, you know, mantra, what's really going to happen to certain provisions that affect, you know, federal fraud investigations. That's one aspect as well. Interesting. And then finally, there's a case out here in Dallas, I think a lot of individuals will find very unique, um, and it's involving a hospital called Forest Park Medical Center, where the government used the Travel Act, which is a federal statute that federalizes commercial bribery, statutes from the states to go after those the hospital that ostensibly didn't do federal business, but really only did at a network commercial payers. Okay. So that's kind of one that's of, very unique. And a lot of physicians have been indicted. The case is publicly indicted. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of individuals that, you know, have been told by counsel, hey, as long as you don't take federal business, you're okay in those states where there's not a robust uh State enforcement similar to the Starker kickback statute. Right. So you've got a lot of positions getting large payments and a lot of commercial payments and SI, excuse me, commercial payers are being, quote, victimized, even defined benefit plan. And I guess one of the last things that I'm seeing is that we're really seeing an extreme view of what the definition of a kickback is in a lot of these cases. And these are mostly criminal cases. Uh, And the Forest Park obviously is a criminal case. But We're saying that, you know, any payments for marketing or any payments to a third party, which potentially referrals made, the government is kind of taking a hard line position and looking at that, you know, under the one purpose test. Right. That could be an illegal kickback. And, you know, a lot of times there may be extraneous and contemporaneous evidence to that effect, regardless of whether or not the contract complies with a stark exception or a, a kickback safe harbor. They're still trying to, you know, allege criminal conduct. Right. And I think that's remarkable, and I think we're going to look at those cases and see. In some instances, I think the conduct's so egregious, it's not going to matter to right. a central jury. But sometimes I think you're going to see you know, very close calls and, and some acquittals. Yeah, I think that will kind of, hopefully, the pendulum will swing back a little bit. And we can do, just like the Yates Memorandum and individual liability, more of a rule of reason rather than just a sort of formulaic approach.
0: Yeah, you know, you mentioned the Travel Act, and I don't know if if this is something that you're aware of, but I think I remember reading something in the New Jersey, in the district in New Jersey, that they used the Travel Act as well. I don't know if it was tied to kind of these commercial claims. Does that ring a bell?
1: Yes, it was. There was a case, and it's still ongoing in New Jersey. I believe that involved an individual physician. Here in the Dallas case, it was used really to try and get all the physicians who got certain amounts of money. And there's a couple of cases. There's one other case in California, and there's one other escapes me. So I don't know if four isolated cases in the last year or so is a trend. Yeah. It's definitely something to be considered of because it's really involving any physician owned entity. Yeah. Does it take Medicare or Medicare or doesn't think they take federal funds? Uh, although that's another question because the subsidies are federal funds. Right. But for purposes of kickback statute, if you're saying, OK, I'm only taking commercial payers, you still got federal criminal liability under potentially wire fraud, mail fraud, yes. state violations, whether enforced or not. And if the feds are going to come and enforce what the states aren't, I mean, that's remarkable. And I don't know if that's going to continue or not. But, you know, it is, it's, it's about four cases going on right now.
0: So that's something for us to watch. We, maybe we'll have you back and, and we can have you talk about some of that uh, as those things play out. Uh, Sean, we really appreciate your, your time and your, and your expertise um, and want to thank you for, for sharing it today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, CJ. All
0: right. And uh, thank you all uh, of all our listeners. Um, we will sign off here from Salt Lake City and we'll uh, talk to you again in our next episode of Compliance Conversations. Thanks for listening.